0: Past ball show brought to you by Oh. What the f
1: do you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- f- Put that in. I don't f- So the tribe drops its third straight of this trip, six to one to
2: the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's see, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit
0: remember, it's not a lie if you believe.
1: Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and
3: still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays.
0: And this team sucks. Well, that is win. Win. he's
3: out. That's right. Brad is in. out. Look at look at this. Brad is out. And uh, Damon Mad. I don't want to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. This can run cleaner than
2: any baseball business
0: ever put out in the 100 years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh, yeah. Welcome aboard. John Pialy, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, Hour 2 of the program. And um, we're going to jump right into an interview I recorded with longtime uh, Major League First Baseman Eddie Robinson. And Eddie first started his career in 1942 and then, of course, served his country in World War II and ended up playing... Up until the year 1957, and he ended up playing for seven of the eight American League teams and would later on become a scout for the Boston Red Sox, which would make him associated with all eight teams of the original American League. He also wrote a book called Lucky Me, My 65 Years in Baseball, and this is a guy that ended up uh, becoming a scout and a general manager eventually under Paul Richards with the Atlanta Braves. So hopefully you guys enjoy this spot with Eddie Robinson, who, you know, you hear his voice, and he doesn't sound any bit close to the 93 years of age that he is. So hopefully you guys enjoy the spot.
1: afternoon. It's John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League First baseman Eddie Robinson. Eddie, thanks for having a couple minutes today. Yeah, fine. All right, Eddie, of course, uh, you know, you ended up writing, uh, writing a book called Lucky Me, My 65 Years in Baseball, and, you know, one of the things you touched on is, you know, through your childhood uh, kind of, uh, you know, being, being part and working in a farming community during the uh, Depression. Uh, if you can, just uh, take us a couple minutes of what it was like, you know, growing up and, you know, how you were able to end up getting into baseball. Well, it
3: was tough. It was uh, depression.
2: Uh, 39 uh, was the beginning of it, and um, I was born in 20, so um, I I went through high school and started playing baseball during very hard times, and and looking back, it it didn't seem like it was ever going to be over, but uh, finally riding itself, and I think Roosevelt had a lot to do with that. got the NRA going, and the CCC camps, and and all those at WPA, and that all all helped, uh, as far as I know, and people went back to work. Um, I worked for my uncle in a motor freight line uh, every morning. I went to work at 5 o'clock, and uh, went to school at 8, and I loaded trucks and delivered freight, Uh, then I worked all day on Saturdays and my mother had a job and my father and my mother were separated. So it was a tough, tough time. I was able to play baseball on Sundays, but, uh, high school didn't have baseball, it was sandlot ball. And we played other teams around Harris, Texas, where I was born and raised. And a scout saw me and, uh, thought I had a chance. He was, uh scout for Knoxville, tennessee Knoxville smokies and uh, so he gave me a 300 hundred dollar bonus so i had a chance to go to texas university on a scholarship but money meant more at that time and uh, i thought if i was any good i could in four years i might be in the big leagues and as it turned out in four years i was in the big leagues
1: and yeah, uh, yeah, no. i now, now you end up uh, you know as you as you as you go through you end up uh, if I'm not mistaken being scouted you know playing um, you know kind of while you're doing the same thing you're working you're doing what you have to do to provide an income and then you're playing baseball on the side how often were you playing at this point
3: uh, it's every Sunday
1: okay so it was, was that week practice we practice during the week but we
2: only played on Sunday we take up collection from the uh, People who came to the games to buy a couple of balls
3: for
2: the next Sunday. Wow. Uh, we take, we broke our bats. We'd take them up and play with them. And, and uh, it was uh, baseball, but it was uh, a little
1: bit primitive, I guess. I understand. And uh, you know, as you're as you're playing, did you ever notice, any, you know, anybody scouting you, or you know, have any oh, no. any knowledge that anybody was I kind never, of following you? Oh, I never.
3: I never knew there was anybody around. Uh,
2: uh, Clyde Mallon, who was a coach for Washington, lived in Clarksville, a neighboring community. And uh, once he found out that, uh, that, that I was about to sign with naturally he said uh, that Washington would sign me. And uh, But it was too late. I'd already committed myself uh, to uh, sign with the Smokies, so I went and did that. Got a $300 bonus. I bought my mom a washing machine and uh, they'll pay off some bills with
1: the rest. Absolutely. And I'm sure she definitely appreciated it. Once again, John Piala here with four major league Oh, yes. Yeah, she <laughs>
3: she appreciated
1: it. She sure did. But, um, Eddie, you, you end up, uh, how, how did you end up being scouted or noticed by the Cleveland Indians? Well, uh,
2: Baltimore bought my contract from, 40.
1: Of course, you know, uh, 1942, you get a chance to make your debut with the Indians, but of course, uh, everything going on with, uh, obviously, Pearl
2: Harbor.
1: Yeah. And Pearl Harbor. Here with former Major League first baseman Eddie Robinson. Now you know while you're while you're serving, you know defending your country, um, you end up coming up. If I'm not mistaken, with a bone tumor, right?
2: Yeah, I had that before I went in, but uh, it, wasn't, it didn't bother me. It, it began to bother me in uh, Hawaii. I was over there. Uh, prior to, all the other guys were shipped down to the islands in the Pacific. They operated on me and the. The doctor messed up my leg, and well, I had a paralyzed leg, and they sent me back to the States, and long story short, I I came back to the States and went to open the old Naval Hospital, and, and they wanted to operate on me, but I'd been told to try to get to Bethesda Naval Hospital, and I did that. Uh, finally, I got assigned to... Uh, at hospital in Bethesda Naval hospital and they had two neurosurgeons there who operated on me and put the nerve they put the nerve back together and, uh, and the nerve rose an inch a month and this was up around my knee that I had the injury from the operation and uh, by spring training in 1940 oh would that be 1947 uh, I was well enough that I made the
1: Indians club, and that was it. That was that. Yeah, now of course you you, know, you start to establish yourself as a, you know as a first baseman. You're you know you you get a good amount of time to play there, and then in 1948. The Indians, uh, you know, end up signing Larry Doby, and you know, there's a little bit of a of a dispute over, you know, you're you're the first baseman. They wanted Larry Doby to play first base, but if I if I'm not mistaken, and correct me if I'm wrong, you know, you you were a first baseman. Every one of the major league games that you played with in your entire career was at first base. So it probably wouldn't have made sense for you to move to the from the position, right? Well, that wasn't it.
2: Uh, They wanted Larry. to play. And and he should have played, but I thought he, I thought he should have played second base. And I don't think Joe Gordon would have minded a day off. But uh,
3: Boudreau put him on first, and and that was
1: that. Yeah, of course, 1948. The Indians come together with you know, with you, with Larry Doby. Of course, uh, you know all the great players you have on that team.
3: Yeah, Doby signed in '47.
1: Uh,
2: Larry Kopit was a good guy, and he did the same thing Jackie Robinson did, but he didn't get the credit because he came into the big leagues after Jackie had already started the season with uh, Oakland, I mean with uh, with uh, Brooklyn, and uh, Larry uh, he had all the guys of other teams yelling at him. This and that is the same as uh, Jackie, but he never got credit. He should have gotten a lot more credit than he
1: got. No, I absolutely agree with that. Of course, you know, 1948, things come together. You end up winning the World Series Championship. Tell us a little bit about that season and what it, what it felt to, uh, you know, finally win it all.
2: Well, we, uh, yeah, we won it. We, we started out good. And we were in the race the whole whole year. Uh, but it came down to um, the last day of the season and uh, we were playing Detroit and Boston was playing the Yankees and if if we win, we win the pennant and if we lose uh, we're in a tie with Boston if they win and they did, they beat the Yankees and we did lose so we were in a tie with Boston and got on the train that night and the next day played a had a playoff game in Boston, and uh, we won that game 8-3, to three. so that put us in the World Series with the Boston Braves, and the thing League, we just stayed in,
3: in Boston and opened up the World Series with
1: them. Yeah, no question. Once again, John Piala here with Eddie Robinson. Uh, you know, you end up playing with the Indians through 48, and then you start kind of a little, uh, little tour of the American League, per se. You, know, you, had, you, had, you end up playing for seven of eight teams. Yeah, you go to Washington, and you end up over the course of the rest of your career playing for seven of the eight teams in the American League. Was there ever any thought maybe with, uh, you know, with the Tigers and the Orioles in 57, maybe the thought to just finish it off and spend a little time with the Reds? Back
2: somehow. <laughs> I, I I was in my last year, and, uh, and Detroit traded for me, and uh, I knew that was going to be my last year. And uh, then they released me, and um, in those days, you got a month's salary. If uh, the club released you during the season, you didn't get paid for the season. You only got a month's salary. So I got a month's salary there and then Cleveland called me and uh, they wanted to sign me so I went over there and played with them for a little bit and they released me and then that was it. I I knew I was done and I'd gotten in a a final year in the big leagues and uh, I was ready to do something else
1: yeah now, of course you you know after your career you end up getting involved obviously in the you know in the front office you start off as a field director for the Orioles in nineteen sixty one and you end up kind of transitioning into a, you know a front office type of role was that was that something that you had you had wanted to do after your you I
3: always wanted to stay in baseball and I always wanted
2: to be in the front office and Paul richards helped me a great deal. he signed me to uh, be with him in, in Baltimore after I was released from uh, Cleveland, and then um, I was sort of a uh, scout and worked at player development in Baltimore, and then I went with Paul to Houston, and we we selected the first Houston team, uh, the Cole 45s, and uh, we were there until uh, Paul was uh let go in 65 after the 65 season and i resigned and went with Eddie little in kansas city uh, he was the general manager i went up there to help him in um, kansas city and then charlie finley was moving to uh open and i didn't want to go to Oakland, so i paul was uh, paul richards was in atlanta and he asked me to come over there and be the farm director uh uh in, in atlanta so i i did that and we were there nine years and then uh i came to texas as a, i was general manager in atlanta uh for six years and then i came to texas with brad corbett and i was general manager here for six years
1: you know, you, you end up, uh, you know, back a little bit when you are with Kansas City. Um, you were considered one of the ones that were that led to uh, the limiting of pitchers to 100 pitches. Uh, what was, at the time, what was the reason behind it? Yeah, that
2: was, to to yeah that, that was a Paul Richards theory that, you know, young, young arms didn't develop as a, a, a you, you take a greater chance of injuring a young pitcher's arm if you let him pitch more than 100 innings. And, um, of course, I, I believe that and I carried that with me to, to everywhere I went after that. But only for the young guys, the guys who were 18, 19, 20 years old. Uh, we had a, a good young pitcher in Atlanta. uh before, uh, before, uh, after we left there, uh, his name was Ernie Thorsman, and he pitched too many innings. And he his arm—he was a great young prospect. But that was a that was a Williams idea, and I think mean a Richards idea, and I think it was a good idea. Uh, I, I just thought Paul Richards was the
1: smartest uh, baseball person I'd ever known. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. It seems like he was, and uh, you know, between you and him, or uh, you guys were kind of revolutionary to the way the game has kind of changed now. And you see, just about all teams kind of go to that model as far as watching pitches, pitch counts, and stuff like that, particularly yeah, down in the minor leagues. They go to,
2: uh, they do it to uh, uh, extreme, and I don't think it's necessary in the big leagues. When I was in the big leagues, pitchers pitch complete games, and uh, I know at 48, Bob Lemon pitched 28 complete games. Of course, that's unheard of now, and but baseball's changed, and so be it. It's a very popular sport. People, fans like it, and uh, times change. So what works today might have worked back when I was there, but uh, in those days, you went with a four-man pitching
1: staff, and that's the it was. Yeah, no question. Once again, John Piala here with Betty Robinson. Now, going back to your, your playing career, was there any one moment that kind of stood out for you? You had some very good seasons. You know, you were you a were very good hitting but, first uh, season. Yeah,
3: there's
2: one moment stands out for me, and that thing that helped me most in my career was uh, some tips that to that uh, Joe Kuehl gave me when I got to Washington. Uh, When I was with uh, Cleveland, Joe Gordon asked me if I ever guessed for pitches. And I said, no, I've always been told not to guess. So uh, that was the end of that. I I asked Rogers Hornsby the next day, I said, should I guess for pitches? He he said, hell no. So that kind of convinced me that I didn't need to do it. But when I got to Washington, uh, Joe Kuehl, uh, to me, and he, said, uh, I mean, he, he sort of said the same thing. I said, I've been told not to guess. He said, it's not guessing, really. It's anticipating what a pitcher's going to throw you. And if it's not that pitch, you don't hit at it. Well, that was a big difference. That was a, that was a thing that made my... I, I began to hit there, as you know. Uh, I made the All-Star team that year. And uh, that was the reason was that I, I became selective, and for up to two strikes, I wouldn't have hit the ball unless it was a, what I was looking for. And then with two strikes, I guarded the plate and uh, just tried to put the ball in play. That was a big that was a big turning point in my career. you'll cool. kill.
3: he was a manager and former first baseman for Washington.
1: Yeah. Now, as you go, you know, you go back, and uh, you know, you you know, you, you remember probably some of the tougher days growing up. Did you uh, did you ever follow baseball as it was going on when you were younger?
3: When I was in high school.
1: Yeah, yeah. When you were, you know, when yeah. Hank Greenberg, Greenberg was my favorite
2: guy. I loved Hank Greenberg. I just thought he was the greatest one. And then I, he was one of the owners of the Indians when I was there.
1: And yeah, he was a great guy. Of course, and great ball player. Now, is there is there maybe your let's say your earliest baseball moment? Let's say you know what year and what you remember. If there's anything that comes to your mind. You mean
3: even when I was a satellite?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you're, you know, when you're a kid, you know, you're just playing, you know, playing ball for the first time, uh, you know, just following the game as it was, let's say, you know, in the, you know, in the 1930s or, you know, what was, what was your earliest baseball memory to see, like, what player did you get to see? My earliest baseball
2: memory was that there were other semi-pro teams or satellite teams that that played before I was old enough to play. And I would go up and, uh, they would be taking batting practice, and I'd get in the outfield and, and shag balls, catch fly balls and all that, and I got pretty good at it. And I saved money and bought a, a glove, cost me $6. I paid it out 50 cents a week. And uh, so I was going to be an outfielder because I could get anything but sit out there. So uh, when we formed our team... Uh, they didn't have a first baseman, so I became a first baseman and I couldn't afford
1: a first baseman, so I played first base in a fielder's club when I was uh, in Paris in semi-pro ball.
2: Yeah, that's awesome. I didn't get a, I didn't get a first baseman until I went into
1: pro ball. Now, did you notice when you got the first baseman that it made that much of a difference or had you gotten so accustomed to using the other mitt that it, it didn't really matter as much? It,
3: uh, it, it of course, the first
2: base mitts better. Uh, I didn't know the difference, and the first base mitts weren't all that great when I made the change. So I probably caught the ball as well with the glove as I did with the mitt.
1: Yeah, uh, very true. Listen, uh, Eddie, I appreciate you having some time, and uh, you know, you know, God bless you, and uh, best of luck, kid.
0: Thank you very much. Great getting a chance to catch up with Eddie Robinson, a guy who has, of course, been associated in Major League Baseball for so long, and. Yeah, for a guy who played in the major leagues in 1942 and you know was associated in major league baseball for so long really since within the last like you know 10 20 years and a guy that certainly has meant a lot to the game a first baseman played every single one of his games at first base and you know the dispute in regards to larry doby and him not wanting larry doby to play first base that was because that was his position so uh you know hopefully you guys understand that and you know, great guy in Eddie Robinson, and I appreciate him giving me some time. What we're going to do is I take our first break of the program. We'll be back with a lot more stuff going on, Pass Ball Show. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at John underscore and like my Facebook page, JohnPieli.com. I always wanted to work in sports, kind of got sidetracked in college, then ended up in a job and, and realized I wasn't happy doing what I was doing. Researched CSB and ended up making you know one of the better decisions in my life. Want to be part of the exciting world of sports broadcasting? You've got to check out Connecticut School of Broadcasting. We have nearby campuses in Stratford, Connecticut, Westbury, Long Island, and Hasbro Heights, New Jersey. There's no stalling here. You start learning from day one, how to use the camera, learning what you're supposed to be doing on camera, getting into the radio booth, DJing. But the biggest thing for me from CSB, they helped me get my foot in the door in two of the best internships in the city. Nothing about the job gets old. It's it's, the good thing about sports is every night's a little bit different. We place thousands of grads for nearly 50 years. Contact us today. Call 1 800 TV Radio or visit gocsb.com.
1: Connecticut School of Broadcasting has nearby campuses in Stratford, Connecticut, Westbury, Long Island, and Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey. Call 1 800 TV Radio or visit gocsb.com.
0: Hey, I'm Sean Big Daddy Lynch. I'm Joe Della And I'm Tim O'Brien. And, and we're your favorite tailgaters.
3: Listen to our show every Tuesday morning from 11 to 12 on MTR Radio.
0: We'll tempt your palate with football, basketball, baseball, hockey—you name it, we got it. That's right, we do. We'll stir things up, voice what's grinding our gears, and just talk plain sports. We hold nothing back. Sports Talk Radio. Are you ready for the tailgaters?
3: Passball Show at toplle.co.
0: Welcome back, John Pielli Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Don't forget to download the iPhone and Android apps if you haven't already. I'm going to play my next interview, and what I like to do with the Passball Show right here on MTR Radio Network is uh, I like to get to the point where we want to kind of incorporate a couple common things within the interviews that I do and uh, of course in the first hour we had a chance to talk with former Washington senators pitcher Don Lowne. and Don had a you know a, a brief big league career which consisted of just two starts and of course you talk about the shutout against the Red Sox he got hit a, a little harder in the next game and you know ended up in the minor leagues for several years never getting a chance to come back and the next guy I talked to his name is Larry Colton and Larry Colton got a ch- chance to pitch just one game and i was in 1968 with the philadelphia phillies he pitched two innings of relief he gave up a run he struck out two and unfortunately was involved in a bar fight right afterwards which ended up kind of derailing his career and he never got back to the big leagues but you know larry ended up uh, doing something pretty good after you know his his playing career was over and it's kind of gotten himself a second life so hopefully you guys enjoy the spot when one time Philadelphia Phillies pitcher Larry Colton.
1: My name is John Pielle. I'm here with former Major League pitcher Larry Colton. Larry, thanks for having a couple minutes today. Well,
2: they call me a former Major League um, pitcher. Stretching it, I'll,
3: I'll take the
1: compliment. Hey, I tell you, man, I heard from a guy you know a long time ago who said that you know, if you spend a day in the major leagues, you are a part of the fraternity. And, uh, you know, hopefully you've you've had that feeling over the years and, you know, a lot of other players have had a chance, you know, even to, you know, spend a day or two is certainly better than the many and many and many who have tried and have not made the big leagues. Well, I only played in
3: one
2: big league game, so that probably means I've only played in one more big league game than you. A friend of mine, uh, Keith Oberman said, Mary, I always got the leap from
1: zero to one is the toughest. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I tell you, you couldn't have hit it more on the head, man. I tell you, you had one more day than, you know, than me. Or, you know, you think about all the all the minor league players, particularly in the time they that they, they you pitched that would play three, four, or five seasons in the minor leagues with the thought that one day they're going to get up to the big stage. And, you know, I, I mean, I'm mean, i sure the uh, the goal in the whole thing isn't to get up there for one day, but you made it one day more than than any of the other players. But, you know, you end up
3: I got
2: hurt right after I got there. I mean, I separated my shoulder, and that was—I never played in another big big game. So, so it, it, my injury completely altered the course of my life. But. Uh, it
1: out it's worked out well. Yeah, no question. And, uh, you know, just a couple couple other questions on your playing career and then I'll, I'll get on to what, you, what you've done since then. Um, you, you know, you spent a couple couple years in uh, AAA up with the Phillies. And, you know, you established yourself as a, you know, as, as a good starting pitcher on the staff in uh, San Diego. And then when San Diego became a Major League Baseball team, um, you know, with the team that was there afterwards, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, some, some of the success you had pitching up, at you know the levels in the uh, Philadelphia Phillies chain. Well, I,
3: I made
2: the big leagues in three years, and I pitched in San Diego, which was Triple A at that time the year before making the big leagues, and I had, I had an ERA of, in the twos and, and led the league in complete games, and so. Uh, was pretty successful, um, and then I went on to play Puerto Rico that winter, and that was pitching against guys like Roberto Clemente and Orlando Cepeda and Johnny Bench and a lot of future Hall of Famers, so I, I, I was doing well until I got there, and then I got hurt, by your stupidity, and because um, uh, it was an off the field uh, accident, but, uh, I was standing up at a bar in, in uh, San Francisco, and I got jumped, and that was that was it. And uh, but uh, I would like to say that I I would uh, have gone on to a successful long-term career. Um, and uh, but in my big league career, my in my two innings, I. I I'm averaging a strikeout in any, which couldn't up There was Sandy Koufax and Nolan Ryan. So, so, so I, if you project that out over a 15 year career, then maybe I'd be in the Hall of Fame.
1: No, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: <laughs> probably not. But anyway, yeah, I I, I
3: look
2: back fondly on the, the attack in the minor leagues. Um, I wrote a book about it, not my minor league
1: career, but other, um, something else. Yeah, no question. And, uh, you know, 1968, of course, like you mentioned, the San Diego Padres went from being a AAA affiliate of the Pacific Coast League to a Major League Baseball team. Is there it, was, was there any significance as far as being on that last team that was down in the minors before it uh, became a Major League Baseball team?
3: Well, I, in 1968, uh, they actually became a big league
2: team in 1969, but in '68, I pitched opening day for the Padres and they had just moved from the other minor league parts and it was they moved into the new stadium which was at that time called San Diego Stadium which later became Jack Derby Stadium and then became Qualcomm. It's a still in as the Chargers still play and so i I've been let <laughs>
1: No question. Once again, John Pielli here with former Major League pitcher by Colton, even though it was 4-1 game, you still pitched in the Major Leagues now. You know, you end up uh, in, in 1970, you get traded over to the Chicago Cubs in a deal with Johnny Callison for Oscar Gamble and Dick Selma. And, you know, it looks like you really, you know, you had, just, you had established yourself prior and, of course, Major, you know, major League debut in uh, 1968. But, you know, 1970 seemed to be a pretty strong season for you. You end up pitching over 200 innings. You know, you, know, you have 12 complete games. Looks like you were kind of on the borderline of getting back into the big leagues. You know, take us back to that season and what it kind of felt to you as you were going through it. Well, I had been traded, uh, as you said, to the
2: drops organization. Uh, I was a player to be named later. You know, the infamous player to be named later. And... Uh, which was in the last place, it might be the worst triple A team in the history of the game. In fact, we were so bad and this is just true. We we're playing the Spokane Indians who were triple A and took managed by Tommy Lasorda, and they had they had the best nine league team ever. They had Davey David and Steve Garvey and Bobby Valentine and Tom Pachoric and Bill Russell and Bill Buckner and all these great players. And they as I was and they eventually walked the team to get to the leadoff head of how
3: we were Yeah, you know,
2: that's so bad we were. Because um, I did a home run off of earlier in the game. And um but yes, I started off I was six and one and leading the in a bunch of things and then even though know, I wasn't throwing as well as I had before my injury, um, but Played a game in Hawaii against Hawaii Islanders, and they had uh, Juan Pizarro, who had been sent down for the big league, was pitching for them. And I lost a game 3-2 to, to Juan Pizarro, and he hit two home runs off of me. And the next day, the Cubs bought Juan Pizarro's contract. Cliff called him up in the big league, and that was the end of my... Uh, And I actually went on from that point on in the season, I didn't do very well. And by the end of the season, I knew I was going to I was, I was still capable of playing, even though I wasn't nearly as good as I was before. But
3: it was just time to start a new direction to life.
1: Yeah, no, of course, uh, you know, after you're done playing, you know, you mentioned earlier you wrote you wrote, wrote a book. You've also written several books. Was your thought after this t- with the interest of being an author, or was this something that just kind of came to you? No, I had There was not one
2: second that I ever thought about being an author uh, an author when I was either going to college or playing ball. But, no, I, I, I thought I was going to being Sam Malone, you know. I was, off bar and like cheers and just hitting all the girls as they came through but um, that didn't quite work out and so I went into teaching I taught for four years I was a high school teacher for four years in English and then I just wrote an article that got a lot of coverage here at Portland Oregon and then from there I just started writing even though I had no background as a writer no training but writing isn't about taking classes it's like it's like dieting you don't lose weight by reading a book you have to exercise so i just stick writing and writing and writing and eventually basically it was five books and uh, uh but it wasn't something i thought about growing up it was uh, I, I didn't care less but you know i did a lot of reading as i, when I was younger so i don't know if just something worked out that way and um, um, there's a, uh, a line in the movie I feel the grief for Kevin Costner's character. goes in pursuit of him Graham who played one game in the major leagues and then became a doctor and Kevin Costner's character Jackson Brown, and okay. what a shape my must be and how bad do you feel because you built the grass under your feet, the roar of the crowd, and still the leather of the glove, and yet you had it all taken away. And my grandson son, "It would be a bigger tragedy if I was only a doctor for a day." And that's exactly how I feel about my writing slash baseball careers. Is that I, I'm much prouder of my writing career than I am you know, as a baseball player because. I was sort of a gym. like all baseball players, you're sort of a genetic freak. You just don't get built with, you're born with some sort of the ability, of course, and you but I, I think I left a bigger mark as a writer. There's a Chinese proverb that says, to achieve immortality, you have to do three things. Plant um, a tree, have a child, and write a book. Well, I've got all those covered, so
1: I guess I'm then going to go yeah, I and I yeah, I love the reference to Field of Field of Dreams, one of my favorite baseball movies of all time. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Go Brothers, because you uh, know it's you know it's a, it, you, know, it's a pretty, you know it's got a pretty good subplot in the way it's set up about uh, you know ex, you know fraternity brothers experience in college and stuff like that. Um, tell us a little bit about you know how you put that together, and I'm sure that was uh, you know that was probably the easiest book that you wrote, right? Uh no,
3: in some ways it was because it was I was part of the book. I it yeah. was
2: about five different guys and I was one of them, so it was partially autobiographical. So I didn't have to do a lot of research on that, but I did a lot of research on the other four guys. That plus the, the story weaves through four tumultuous decades in America and. So I did a lot of background on what was going on and because of all of the impact it had on the characters from civil rights to in Vietnam, to the sexual revolution, to feminism, to everything else. And so I did background on that. So, uh, but um, as you said, it's a book about these four, five uh, sort of California quote golden Boys as as they registrate through a landscape of the last, you know, four decades and um so um, it was well received and got great reviews and it was actually auctioned you know, as a movie didn't get made. Actually every one of my books has been auctioned as a movie, but none of them have gotten made. Although now for the first time I actually have been hired as a screenwriter for my last book it never happened. But one the writer did to, to write the screenplay, and so maybe I'll write
1: my way to different in that way. Well, uh, listen, it sounds good, man. It sounds like you know, in spite of, you know, your your opportunity to make to the major leagues, uh, you know, you put everything you had into. It looks like you've done very well as a writer, and I wish you the best of continued success, and hopefully, uh, you know, you get to you know, you get yourself a movie someday.
3: Well, that would be good, yeah, uh, because
2: writing, especially with the state of publishing world in each stage, as you know, is not exactly flush with money, and so that would be nice. Sure would. So, but
3: it's been a good ride, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, no question about it. Thanks a lot for the time, Larry, and uh, like I said, best best of luck to your continued success. Well, thanks
0: for the call. I appreciate it. So that was Larry Colton, of course, one-time pitcher for the Philadelphia Phillies. What we're going to do is we're going to take a break, and we're going to finish up the program, bases empty block style, back after this. listening to mtr radio we have ignition Strap in. you're about to listen to the hottest sounds
3: on mtr radio and you're listening to mtr
0: radio a flipping out radio production
3: and you've got it
0: hot 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 blaze blaze in the steel
1: Always covering the most current topics today. Check us out on mtrradio.com.
0: We will offer packages to advertise on our website and on MTR Radio. Get your name in front of over 5.5 million people. Advertise on MTR today. Email info at mtrmedia.com for details. This is Lady E, one of the many broadcasters at MTR Radio. If you're listening to mtrradio.com, fantastic. ¡Qué bueno! But if you want to take us with you, we have an app for your smartphone that lets you listen to us 24-7. Just go to Google Play on your Android device or the iPhone App Store and download our app, MTR Radio. is empty, vlog.
1: Go ahead, laugh, laugh, all you want. But the fact of the matter is, this is this is the setting for the greatest story ever told. Okay.
0: Bases empty, blog. Bases empty, blog. Bases empty, vlog. Bases empty, blog. Bases empty, blog. Welcome back, John Pielae, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Of course, in the bases empty blog section of the program, which you could check out on my JohnPielae.com website, writing just about every day stuff, conventional, uh, historical, all different stuff going on in Major League Baseball, and you know you may learn a little something too there. I think it's uh you know I like to do the research and like to kind of just compare different players and stuff like that. The first comparison I made is uh, to. Cincinnati Reds outfielder Billy Hamilton and of course he's been known over the last couple of years to be maybe the next Vince Coleman, the next Ricky Henderson type in regards to his speed, Tim Raines, Lou Brock, guys like that and you know his namesake was actually a uh, player in the 1800s. He played from uh, 1888 to 1901. And the thing that that it makes it pretty interesting is the fact that the game of baseball was so different then, but this Billy Hamilton, the one that played in the late 1800s, played for the Kansas City Cowboys, the Philadelphia Phillies, and the Boston Bean Eaters. And this guy was uh, you know, pretty much the speedster of his time. And one thing you have to factor in, and this was brought up a very good point, that the game of baseball was so different in the late 1800s. That you know, there was fouls that, you know, to, to a certain extent, were not counted as strikes. Um, you know, there was a certain year that that changed. Remember the fences that used to be around the outfield, which used to hold in the spectators, the people that came into the game, obviously in, impacted the game. If the ball rolled under there, it was a ground rule triple. And, you know, sometimes the home team's fans would pull the, pull the ropes out to uh, make the ball be in more play and give them a better chance of getting an inside the park home run. So obviously the game was different. And Billy Hamilton, who turns out to be a hall of famer in major league baseball, he's inducted in 1961, 21 years after his passing. And uh, you know, the, the 19th century speedster, one of the more ridiculous coincidences in history, if Billy Hamilton of the Reds wasn't named after him in some way, shape or form, because uh billy hamilton the, the current one is billy r hamilton and billy robert hamilton was the player that played in the late 1800s and the uh, Eller hamilton uh you know ends up uh, like i said being in baseball's hall of fame but stole 914 bases which is a major league record until lou brock passed the total in 1978. he gets little attention since his career spanned you know the years that it did but uh you know in 1889 he had the first of his four 100 stolen base seasons Unofficially, the first one in major league history. He was also an incredible hitter, hitting 344 for his career. He would score more than 100 runs in a season, 11 times in his 14 year careers, including six times of 140 or more. In 1894, he stole a staggering 198 runs. Um, he walked over 100 times in a season, four times, and had at least 81 walks in 10 different seasons. His on base percentage was 455 for his entire career. For a player who had 242 doubles, 95 triples, and uh, just 42 home runs in his career, he ended up with an on-base plus slugging, which obviously wasn't calculated at that time, but it was still 888 for his career. He ended up scoring more runs, 1,697, than games he played in 1594. Obviously, it's difficult, extremely difficult to expect anybody to match the career of one of the more underrated players of the 19th century. The modern-day Hamilton should not be expected to do what this other guy did. But the issue is, is Billy Hamilton of the Reds has to work on getting on base better. His plate selection, his inability to walk frequently have put put enough pressure on him needing to get a hit to get on base. And going back to his stats in the minor leagues, um, I mean, he had two very good seasons. You look at his 311 average, his on-base percentage of 410 in 2011— and in 2012 he hit 323 with a 413 on base percentage. Obviously it's got to get better since he hit just 258 last year and on base about uh, exactly 308. Um, it's a you know unfortunate thing. I mean here's a guy that has a chance to be, like I said, the next Ricky Henderson, the next Lou Brock, but he's going to have to worry about getting on base a little better and he may have a chance with the Reds this year he may be their starting center fielder he may lead off he may have a chance to go on his little run and be that prolific base dealer that the next generation is looking forward to seeing. And, you know, to this point, um, coming off a down season in 2013, so he's got a long way to go, obviously, is never going to be his namesake, which is Billy Hamilton, the player of the late... 1800s, but another thing I got into in bases empty blog dot com the whole thing I did my uh, what are they doing in a Hall of Fame team as we got close to the announcement of the Hall of Fame selection and and you know what I did I, I went through the list of every player that's been inducted and some people don't like to go this route because the Veterans Committee ends up bringing in players for certain reasons, like the whole Tinkers to Evers to Chance, the double, the double play combination for the Chicago Cubs of the early 1900s, none of those three players were Hall of Fame worthy based on their own merit. So I started out, I went to first base, and a couple guys that were pretty close, George Kelly with the New York Giants, uh, Tony Perez, of course, recently in the Hall of Fame of the Cincinnati Reds, but I ended up going with Frank Chance, and Frank Chance's career... Ended up not being so Hall of Fame worthy. He played parts of 17 seasons in the bigs. Had just 1,274 hits and hit two ninety-six for his career. Not a Hall of Famer. Guys, in, in regards to second base, I was thinking about Tony Lazari. I was thinking about Johnny Evers. But I ended up going with Bill Mazarowski, He was 17-year career. Just over 2,000 hits. A six sixty seven OPS. It's not Hall of Fame worthy. So Bill Mazarowski is the winner for second base shortstop. Um, I, this was an interesting one because you think of a lot of shortstops that ended up getting in based on their defense alone. Uh, Ozzie Smith, obviously not a guy that you would consider not a Hall of Fame player because he was the best ever defensively. But, you know, Barry Larkin is a guy who recently got in. I talk about my comparison with Alan Trammell that you listened in the first hour. Um, you know, Joe Tinker is a guy that was pretty interesting. Uh, Phil Rizzuto came pretty close to not being Hall of Fame worthy, but... I ended up going with Rabbit Marinville of the Boston Braves. He ended up hitting just two fifty eight for his career, and the hits, you know, was a reflection of the amount of games that he played. He had uh, what, twenty over twenty six hundred hits. Um, was not really a Hall of Fame player. Let's be honest. So Rabbit Marinville is a shortstop, third base. Uh, I was considering Ron Santo, but I went in with Freddie Lindstrom, who, in my opinion, um, just ended up not. You know, just seventeen hundred forty-seven hits. He is a three eleven hitter. But to me, was just not a Hall of Fame player. He played, if I'm not mistaken, 13 seasons in the big leagues, but was a product of the New York Giants players of the early 1900s being elected by the Veterans Committee. The outfield, I ended up going with some guys who I thought were pretty interesting. Um, you know, guys like Andre Dawson, Earl Averill, Kirby Puckett were probably uh, borderline guys. Some based on the amount of time they played, and some on you know strict dominance, but. You know, Chick Hafey was a former Cardinals outfielder who played 13 seasons. And what's interesting to me is that similar to the Giants players that ended up being inducted in the Hall of Fame based on people in the Veterans Committee that were kind of fans of them. Uh, I think the same thing happened with some early 1900s St. Louis Cardinals players, and Chick Hafey fits the build. I mean, he, but the fact that he had almost a 900 OPS and hit over 300, he gets an honorable mention in this. So the guys I end up going with was a guy by the name of Ross Youngs, who played for those same Giants teams that I mentioned before. Played just 10 seasons in the big leagues, and I don't think he necessarily dominated the sport. I mean, he was a guy who uh, you know ended up OPS in 839, hit just 42 home runs. And he gets one of the spots. Elmer Flick is another player who kind of played in that same era. Just 48 home runs, 1,772 hits. And he had just 261 more hits than Young had in three less seasons. So the last one was pretty interesting. And I decided to go with Jim Rice over Kirby Puckett and Andre Dawson. Rice was a good player. A great player at times. But he was not a legendary player. He deserves to have his number retired by the Boston Red Sox. But 382 homers, 1441 RBIs, and a 854 OPS. Dawson was pretty close, but I ended up choosing Rice over him. So Elmer Flick, you know, ends up getting in there as well from the Cleveland Naps. And you know, like I just said, Ross Young and Jim Rice, the catcher. Honestly, there's two catchers in the Hall of Fame that absolutely do not belong. And one of them was Wes Farrell of the Indians, Ray Schalk of the Chicago White Sox is the other one and i came pretty close to this but i gave farrell a little bit of credit because he played 18 seasons and hit 281 though he was pretty unimpressive in his other stats ray shalk ended up playing the same amount of seasons but you know ends up being given credit because he was one of the non guys that were throwing the 1919 world series but let me throw his stats at you 253 average 12 homers 538 RBIs, 1,345 career hits, and a 656 OPS. It's Ray Shalk. So, the team that I would have put together Elmer Flick, Bill Mazarowski, Jim Rice, Freddie Lindstrom, Frank Chance, Ross Youngs, Rabbit Maranville, and Ray Shalk. My honorary mention team, the second team, would have Earl Averill, Phil Rizzuto, Andre Dawson, Tony Perez, Ron Santo, Wes Farrell, Chick Hafey, and Johnny Avers. And, uh, you know, I think it's pretty interesting to look at, you know, you talk about guys that are on the outside looking in in regards to the Hall of Fame. Well, how about guys that are in that I know they would never think about doing this, but how about, uh, you know, contracting a couple players from the Hall of Fame to honor ones that are more deserving? And there's so many different errors we talked about. I talked about guys that I always thought should be in the Hall of Fame from Gil Hodges to Ted Simmons to Al Oliver to Alan Trammell. You know, guys like that, and of course we talk about the guys that are on the ballot this past year, in addition to Trammell, Biggio, Bagwell, and Piazza, who I would have put in the Hall of Fame. All different types of players that really could be Hall of Famers and aren't. But, you know, we talk about sometimes the watered-down version of the Hall of Fame, which may include guys like Andre Dawson and Jim Rice and Tony Perez and guys like that, and of course, we talked about the bottom part of Rabbit Marinville and Wes Farrell and Ray Schalk. All guys who end up in a Hall of Fame for different reasons, and Tinkers to Evers to Chance. That was a great poem, but it's not a Hall of Fame player. You know, it's a good poem. You know, that's what it belongs. It doesn't really belong in baseball's Hall of Fame, but I'll never make that point and say that there's players that are in that should be out, even though they should be. I mean, the fact that the Veterans Committee at some point inducted some players and in some cases the Baseball Writers Association of America, you know what, because that happened, they should be in a Hall of Fame. But I do think that baseball's Hall of Fame should be expanded a little bit to honor some players that really do belong in a Hall of Fame. And I'm not about the guy that says, hey, if Rabbit Marinville is in a Hall of Fame, then Omar Vizquel should be it. Or I'm not going to say something like that. I'm not going to say anything silly like, Ray Schalk being in the Hall of Fame means that uh, Lance Parrish and Bob Boone got to be in the Hall of Fame. You understand that? You know, there's a, there's a difference. When we're talking about Hall of Fame type of players that are up there with legitimate Hall of Fame players, you know, the guys that are, were inducted by the Veterans Committee and, in some cases, the Baseball Writers Association of America, deserve to be there. Whether we agree with the reasons or not, they're still in the Hall of Fame. But my candidate's have to do with legitimate Hall of Famers, guys that you say are no doubt Hall of Famers. And I'm going to close with this. Barry Larkin, based on the career that he had, really in a lot of people's minds was not a dispute over whether he should be in the Hall of Fame. Well, if there's a player in Major League Baseball history that had almost the exact same career and his career spanned a certain amount of similar time within the era of Barry Larkin, then I think he should be in the Hall of Fame. And that's why I think the Baseball Writers Association of America and the Veterans Committee should think a little more serious about bringing in Alan Trammell. Thanks to Don Lowne, Eddie Robinson, and Larry Colton for being part part of the program. We'll be back with you next week with a very special episode of the Passball Show right here on the MTR Radio Network.